0: Today's show is being brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, believers in good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
0: hey 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 it's Monday and it is time for what doesn't kill you food industry insights I'm your host Katie Kiefer and this is the Heritage radio network broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick Brooklyn i um, today I'm really pleased to announce that I have a wonderful guest uh, Lydia tanaglia who has been uh, is one of the founding uh, producers for 0.0 productions this is an Emmy and Peabody award-winning television and digital production company uh, that was founded by Lydia and her uh, her co-executive producer, Chris Collins, and I know them from way back when, when I was doing publicity for books, and uh, I did the publicity for A Cook's Tour by Anthony Bourdain, and Lydia and her crew did the filming of that show, Um, and they have gone on to shoot and produce uh, unbelievable uh, and wonderful uh, films and and documentaries and Emmy Award-winning series like Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown, which is on CNN, uh, The Mind of a Chef, which is on Netflix. Um, and in 2013, they acquired the Food Republic website, one of the launch properties uh, to uh, in a new uh, ZPZ-owned uh, publishing venture. And they are currently in production on Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown Season 5. Oh, is it 6? Oh, well, you guys have to update your website then, girl. I know,
1: we do have to update.
0: <laughs> um, I will go on, and thank you for that correction. Um, an untitled series with Christiane uh, Amanpour. Now, that's is, that is that's ongoing, right? That's un, that hasn't aired yet.
1: Yes, we are actually in production on that with uh, CNN. It's a, a mm-hmm. new project with, with Christiane.
0: And you guys are doing a series on Detroit, Once a Great City.
1: Yes, that's based on a book by David Moranis. Um, by the same name, Once in a Great City, mm-hmm. and it really focuses on Detroit during a very specific period of its history, which is around 1962 uh, to 64. Um, so huh. it's a very concentrated look at Detroit when it was really at its height as a mm-hmm. great American city it was sort of held up as an example of how a city could really be firing on all cylinders and and functioning properly. And it, it, was, a, it was a just a, a, almost sort of this bubble of Detroit's history that um, that was a, a, a kind of perfect example of how things could go right, you know.
0: Wow! And then and then this summer, um, and I'm sure you saw this too, but there was a lot of there was a I guess a, a, a National Public Radio produced a series about the riots in Detroit, which were a few years after that, I guess.
1: Yes, yes. There seems to be a lot of focus on that particular period of Detroit's history. The the, the film uh, Catherine Biglow's film just released um, that that really focuses on that time period. This time period is, you know, nearly seven, eight years before that Mm -hmm. and, and sort of focuses on that golden period of Detroit's
0: history. Isn't that fascinating, Lydia, that, first of all, that, 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 so, that so many, um, you know, creative minds are converging at once on this particular decade in the history of Detroit, but also that in that period of time, you you show off the golden age, and, and just a few short years later, the city was in a shambles yes. and has, not, has yet to recover. And I, I, hope, I think it's sort of in recovery now because I think more people are moving out there because it's... Well, housing stock is cheap, right?
1: Yes. I mean, I think it is in recovery. I mean, we've certainly shot um, in Detroit, you know, on the Bourdain series, and Mm -hmm. you can really see, you know, a a, a renaissance happening in in that city, which is really amazing. Um, You know, I think that, again, the period that we're concentrating on is really sort of showing, you know, how the... You know, between the car industry and Motown, and sort of the mm-hmm. civic leaders at that time, politics of the of the the city, you know, were were intersecting in in all the right ways. In 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 that exploration, you definitely get a sense of you know the 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 underpinnings, you know, that would eventually lead to the city kind of cracking apart. Mm. But it's a, it's a really fascinating story about this particular it's almost 18-month period, two-year wow. period, where the, the the city was just completely firing on all cylinders in the right way, and um, I think it's going to be a, a really fascinating look and one that has so much relevance to, I think, what's happening now.
0: Absolutely. You
1: know, as well. So yeah, yeah. That should, that's, that's also on CNN, and that will be out in um, 2018, like, mid-year
0: 2018. Uh-huh. And then uh, and then you have four documentary feature films, including Jeremiah Tower, The Last Magnificent. Um, and that, I want to tell you that my friend Martha called me up a couple of, uh, about a week ago. Actually, she texted me at like 9 o'clock at night. And she said, I just finished watching this amazing documentary about Jeremiah Tower. Have you seen it? And I said, no, I have not seen it. And <laughs> I immediately watched it, and it was fabulous. Oh, totally thank great. You. Totally recommend it. But today we're going to talk about Wasted the story of food waste which is going to debut uh, uh, in October uh, of this year um, yeah. so tell us a little bit about wasted and um, who is in it and why you focused on because it's got a lot of star chefs in it and um, and what they you know what they offer in terms of solutions uh, for this tremendous problem that we face as a nation
1: yeah I mean the documentary came back it came about through a collaboration with the Rockefeller Foundation and um, who, you know, in um, 20, I think it was 2013, uh, initiated a uh, you know, a new endeavor um, called YieldWise. Uh, they launched this program called YieldWise, which is like a $130 million initiative to reduce food waste uh, by 50% by the year 2030. So it's, it's one of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and Rockefeller is, you know, heavily in, involved in that. And so we um you know really frankly as people who've been working in food travel television for almost 17 years, you know you go around the world and you are you see firsthand uh the way different countries um approach their food, I mean countries that are you know less uh, bountiful and fortunate <laughs> as the United yeah. States, the way that they go about you know their their connection with food. We're we're very um, we're you know very connected to that, and we've we've seen it firsthand. And so we actually um, developed a, a pitch for a film idea to take to Rockefeller, uh-huh. um, and it that's how the, the the collaboration started. I think Rockefeller hasn't done films like this in the past, um, and I think they were very interested in our angle in. Which is really through the eyes of chefs. People right. obviously enjoy watching food. They watch food television, and we thought, how do you make a a really challenging subject like this? Um, you know, because these advocacy films and you know these cause driven films sometimes you know are turn people off or are hard to market. We figured, let us yeah. go in through the eyes of of chefs and 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 you know, look at the ways that they're offering uh, solutions to this problem. So that's what we did. Um, We wanted to make it entertaining. We wanted to make it beautiful to watch, and we wanted to make it very solution-driven, but in a way that was accessible to people. So chefs were really the way to do that. So we focused primarily on, you know, Dan Barber, um, who's sort of obsessed to the nose-to-tail approach to a farm. Mm -hmm. Obviously we hear a lot about nose-to-tail eating uh, in general, but he said... You know, people do it with, with, uh, with, you know, um, you know, animals nose to tail eating with animals. Why don't we do that with a farm? So he, you know, he's right. constantly obsessively looking at farms and vegetables, what's producing there, the biomass of like certain plants, and you know, the idea of using what we consider waste, you know, for flavor. Um, so we, we, you know, and Dan is is really a, a trailblazer in in that regard. Sure. Um, Batali too, you know, he's a trailblazer in that he made awful, you know, very popular, and so right. we, we focused a scene on him and um, his. Uh, one of his his, his chefs at Esca, um, looking at trash fish, you know, fish that people basically throw away when they do a, uh, you know, they're sort of the bio, um, sort of the. Bio catch, like the, the trash fish that you throw away when you're catching the fish. Yeah, by the catch.
0: Want. By the catch. Is the catch. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
1: And so, you know, we, they did a dish with that. And uh-huh. Danny Bowen, someone enam- enamored with peasant cuisine, sort of a real student of culinary traditions. And so, you know, his focus on, um, again, using, you know, produce, vegetables that are typically overlooked you know, in his, his meals. And then Massimo Poturo of course, you know, he's taking his celebrity and, and sort of leveraging it for the greater good with his raffatorio concept, uh, which is really sort of a, <clears throat> for lack of a better description, a really sort of amazingly constructed, beautiful approach to the soup kitchen. Uh-huh. And, that, and that's really sort of taken off. You know, he's feeding not just people, but revitalizing neighborhoods and getting communities involved in this. What started out in, Milan, Italy, and now he has different branches of the Raffetorio elsewhere. He's opening one in France, there's one in um, Brazil, and he's going to really push forward to try to open more Raffetorios around the world.
0: So, so uh, just to just to dwell yeah. on that concept for a second, so a Raffetorio would be a place where um, uh, w- leftovers or waste uh, from, I don't know, farms or households is recycled into food and then fed to the poor? Is that what you're talking about? It's yes. Like-
1: that is exactly okay. it but it the, the you know the building itself is beautifully constructed it's, mm-hmm. uh, it tables are set out there's plates and you know silver you know uh silverware and and glasses and right. um, and and yes they procure waste from various supermarkets and and restaurants and by waste it means you know that leftover produce that's right perfectly usable perfectly uh um you know, still vital. Sure. Um and they take that that uh, material and and they repurpose it for for this raffetorio, this this kitchen that feeds people in the neighborhood.
0: Wow, that's an amazing story. Yeah. Um so just, just to sort of back up for a second, let's talk a little bit about what the economic and ecological impacts of food waste are. Because I think, I mean, most of my listeners are pretty tuned into this, pro- to this topic. But just to recap for those who might be new to it, um, it's, uh, we waste, what, in the United States alone, we waste about 40% of the food that we grow, right? What is, yeah. the, what is the economic impact of that? What is that? What does that cost, roughly? I mean,
1: cost, there's about 1.3 billion tons of food wasted every year
0: Unbelievable. You
1: know, the, an- the annual cost of food waste is about 1 trillion dollars mm. you know when you look globally there's 800 million people or so starving right. globally in the world so in the US like, we do waste 40% of the food that is produced yeah. it's thrown away um, and 90% of that that wasted food uh, typically ends up in landfills and you know people have this tremendous misconception as did I Going into this project that, you know, you throw away organic matter, it's just decomposing, and that's what it does. But when food rots in a landfill, it actually produces methane, which is 23 times more powerful as a greenhouse gas you know, than carbon di- dioxide. So it is one of the single most um, egregious producers. Rotting food in landfills right. is, w- is one of the biggest egregious you know, producers of, of uh, greenhouse gases.
0: Why does that's that happen that in have. landfills and not in compost?
1: Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I think, you know, years ago we didn't have recycling bins, right? Yeah. And suddenly people put recycling bins out and people started to concertedly recycle. Composting, I hope, as as the film makes its case and, and the word gets out, is, is really going to be the new recycling bin. Um, I... The film made me personally make a change in my life. I thought I live in New York City. How am I, you know? There's no compost um, mechanism in the apartment building where I live. You know, how am I going to do this? And with very little research, I realized I could put a, you know, put my food scraps in a separate bin. Um, it doesn't smell. And every Wednesday, I take it to Union Square. Every Wednesday and Saturday, I take it to Union Square, and there's a big community compost drop-off right there. It's a very easy walk, and many, many neighborhoods have that similar, um, you know, uh, uh, type of... Uh, it typically happens in, like, a farmer's mar- market, right? and I've, I've been concertedly doing that, um, and I, I think, hopefully, the film will have that kind of impact, where mm-hmm. you're really delivering these very eye-opening statistics to people, and compelling them to make a personal change. It starts with individual change. Yes. And composting was, you know, a hell of a lot easier than I had had imagined, I mean, in, in New York City. So, you know, I, I, our hope is that, again, just by presenting the film and, and making a very chef-driven, you, know, chef um, uh, you know, type of story, you know, people are going to enjoy watching the film but also learn the individual ways that they can they can make an impact as well.
0: Well, the, uh, one of the things that you um, describe in the film <clears throat> is the food waste pyramid, mm-hmm. and that was something apparently developed by the EPA. Can you talk about the food waste pyramid? What does that mean?
1: Yeah. You know, the, the the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, developed a food waste period to help us upcycle waste and keep it out of landfills. Um, we didn't work with the EPA in, in making the film, but mm. we did look at the food waste pyramid, you know, as a, a sort of guidepost um, for, for our narrative. Um, and basically, the food waste py- pyramid is, you know, at the top of the pyramid is feed people. So any excess food that is produced, you know, should be directly uh, channeled to feeding people. And I think the film shows the ways that, that we can do that, um, you know, through Vitali using the bycatch, by Baturo creating the raffatorio, mm-hmm. by um, the supermarket in Dorchester, Massachusetts, you know, collecting the, uh, you know, what they call the, you know, less than perfect looking produce uh, and creating this small supermarket where that produce could be sold and created into a food product. So, you know, first and foremost, feed people. Secondly is feed animals. Yeah. So, you know, animals like pigs and chickens and, you know, they... Eat anything um, and 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 so and so it's you know feed people next, and we did a number of scenes where uh, people are really turning food waste into really interesting sources of animal feed mm-hmm. so we, we explore those scenes in the film um, so feed people feed uh, feed animals um, composting next, which we just talked about, mm-hmm. and then y- there are scenes that talk about how we can turn the food waste into actual uh, energy mm-hmm. product, and then you know after you've gone through that whole pyramid, you know then what's left over is the thing that ends up, you know in in the in the landfill after you've gone through all these tiers, and
0: hopefully mm-hmm.
1: you're reducing at every step of that that pyramid. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm Michael Harlan Turkell, host of The Food Scene and Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here at Bob's Red Mill to find out from Bob himself why
2: his products taste so good. So what's the secret, Bob? To make the best whole grain flour, we look back in time. No modern technology can match the old world engineering of a stone mill. Wow. Bob's Red Mill is using stone mills? How old are we talking here? Well, the stone mills are practically as old as mankind. And no matter what civilization they uncover, they find two stones that people were rubbing together to make uh, something they could eat, whole wheat flour. But the stones that we use are quarried near Paris, France, in La Ferte. And it's the same stone material from the same quarry that the uh, Romans used to make stone mills all over the Roman Empire, of which you can testify by looking at, at Pompeii. It's a quartz material. It has a uniqueness about it. It's very hard. It has a certain porosity, and they put the stones together in a unit of 20 pieces and band it so that they use only the best and, and sharpest parts. It's an ingenious thing but very old. I mean, thousands of years old. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Those sound like some really special stones. How do they work? Stones turning either the top or the bottom stone, turning at 100 to 125 revolutions per minute, produce a lovely 3, 4, up to 500 pounds, depends on the, how, how soft the grain is. The bottom stone is the bedstone, and it's also called the nether stone in the Bible. But it also now turns for some configurations would you say that using stone mills lead to healthier grains i know they do i can watch it i showed you (laughs) you know it as well as i do uh the grain goes in the top goes through the stones and it comes out we don't lose anything and we don't add anything thanks for sharing the story of how bob's red mill is using ancient technology to keep their products on the cutting edge Michael, we think that we can make a difference by sticking by the traditional way of stone milling whole grain, and that's what we're doing. You can learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
0: You know, uh, one of the things that, one of the strategies that you include in the film is the South Korean system uh, for not wasting food. And it's it kind of reminded me of cap and trade in a weird way. And I, I wondered if you would describe that because that's a, that's actually a financial incentive to people to not waste food. So mm-hmm. can you describe that for listeners?
1: The, the, the South Korean? Yes. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we, I'm trying to, trying to just, Remind myself, um, the this, this South Korean thing was was very, very, very cool because I think they they had great success on starting at like just the household level, you know, right. in a very short period of time. And so, in like around 2013, like the South Korean government started tracking the amount of food waste that just one household and a and flash apartment in South Korea was generating, and they introduced this system where residents were issued an electronic ID card that would open an automated bin and enable them to weigh the food waste being dropped off. And then they would be charged, Wow! you know, in a certain amount of money yep. for the weight of that food. Wow. And, and so it's like an electric bill. You know, a fee is charged at the end of the month based on how much food a given household is thrown away. And, you know, there's nothing like bills and economics, you know, to motivate people <laughs> but, to I mean, how did they reduce how did, their food waste. Yeah. And in a very, very short period of time, you know, the people in Seoul were able to change their behavior very, very quickly. I mean, it's you know, South Korea is a very small country. Yeah. They were having a tremendous problem with, with, with you know, the discard of, of their waste. Really? So they introduced Easy. this system. You know, people, and you see it in the film, like people are sitting there kind of squeezing their you know, food waste down to, like, the smallest possible ball because it's going to get weighed, and then they're going to get charged based on the weight of that
0: that discard. But how did they enforce compliance with that? That that was what uh, struck me as, like, how do you make, I mean, how do you make people do that? What, was there a fine if they didn't use I, their card or something like that? I mean, yeah, how did the government track that? Yeah, I don't know the
1: specifics of, of the enforcement. I do mm-hmm. know that, like you know, the recycling bins that are, are put out, um, The to throw away your trash in Korea, you have got to, there are bins out on the street, there are electronic bins, I to see. physically throw away your trash, you've got to put your card in this bin, it's an electronic bin that opens up, and that's how you do it, so you have nowhere else to put
0: I got your you. garbage you right, have to right. do it. you have to you know that's the enforcement I see I got you and what about farmers i mean you know farmers uh, are obliged by because of american consumption patterns they seem to be obliged to discard any food that is not you know uh visually attractive and w- what are they doing i mean aside from giving to soup kitchens and stuff like that what what are the strategies for farmers i mean how do we train americans to Not insist on that blemish-free apple or peach, um, and rather, you know, it's
1: a great question. And and honestly, the farmers can't do that alone. Right. Supermarkets need to be held accountable too. I think we show that in the film. Mm -hmm. You know, they, along with the American consumers, you know, both contribute to the obsession to perfect-looking produce. And you know, you travel in parts of Europe and all over the world. You know, people are not consuming fruits and vegetables that way <laughs> i mean yeah. you know no one needs that perfect looking you know red tomato it's so it's 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 not just the farmers it's the supermarkets who are obviously mm. you know feeding into the demand and contributing to that obsession so i think you know far like we see with you know Baturo and and many of the the, the people the characters that we cover you know farmers could donate their excess um produce to soup kitchens and food banks. You know, mm-hmm. their hard work and month-long efforts have, you know, created delicious and healthful food, so it's best at first those calories can be used, as we show in the food pyramid, to, to feed people. Um, and and similarly, their excess could be used to produce and feed animals like pigs and chickens. They can eat anything, so why pay mm-hmm. for animals when you can feed them the leftovers? So sort of changing that dynamic between you know engineered feed to organic feed right Um, you know and i think long-term farmers are starting to work with entrepreneurs to make you know new and novel products out of their farm leftovers like juices um Mm -hmm. we had done some research where even some farms were were uh working with distillers (laughs) to create liquor um you know the Really interesting thing we saw at the General, General Mills factory where, like, you know, byproduct is used to create energy. So I think once people sort of tap into the, the actual economics um, surrounding food waste, I, I think we're going to see a, a, a very concerted change.
0: Well, I think, yeah, I mean, it seems to me that the, that if the corporate world <clears throat> embraces the concept of reclaiming and reusing food, uh, in a you know variety of different uh, applications, then I think uh, they will see it as a as a as a winning strategy for raising yep. their their uh, dividends. Right? I mean, yep. Yep. you know, I mean, essentially, it all comes down to money. It's the only way anything ever changes, as far as I can tell. It's like you you're, can.
1: You're absolutely right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. It's going to come down to money. When someone realizes, like, holy crap, you know, all that food that's getting thrown away could be generating. You know, energy electricity, or, energy, right, you know, right. there is, you're going to, you, and you, I've read so many articles now where, you know, entrepreneurs are really starting to tap into to that, but I think you're right. Money's going to be the big motivator.
0: Yeah. Um, one of the things that uh, a lot of the chefs uh, talked about in the film is, you know, changing people's, uh, people's, you know, home cooks. Uh, becoming more uh, prevalent, and and the thing that uh, that I have uh, been talking about for the last nine years that I've been doing this program, is that uh, relatively few people cook at home anymore, and um, and that to me, uh, you know, it's it's one of the biggest reasons we have food waste is that people buy stuff and then they don't quite know what to do with it or they don't yep. end up using it all. It's one of the reasons why these meal kits have become so popular because you you know you get your three. Uh, sprigs of thyme instead of buying a whole bunch that you then throw out because you don't know what to do with it afterwards, you know, like that kind of stuff. But, um, and then a lot of people just don't have access either to, uh, you know, cooking facilities because they live in low-income housing or maybe their refrigerator isn't working or they don't have access to a stove. I mean, there are all of these sort of barriers in place uh, for people to go back to the kitchen, not the least of which is lack of education on how to cook. And I wondered if the, the chefs described uh, um, any methods in which um, we could sort of reactivate the impulse uh, towards home cooking that has been uh, lost over the last 25, 30 years.
1: Yeah, I mean, we don't specifically cover that in the film. I, I think
0: mm-hmm.
1: you cover scenes, um, you know, with the, the edible schoolyard and even in
0: right.
1: uh, the... the, the single mother with her kids in the film, where we do show this re-education that's, that is happening, I think much to, to your point, you know, where there are places even in food deserts like the Dorchester supermarket mm-hmm. where people are starting to, um, you know, be re-educated where they can procure you know, more nutritious and helpful foods. And, and you know, e- even places like the Dorchester Supermarket have that sort of pre-prepared food section,
0: uh-huh. trying to
1: answer the question that you just raised, which is a lot of people just don't have the time, the inclination, or the means. So, you know, these t- these sort of pre-prepared meal kits um, and pre-prepared foods in places like that Dorchester Supermarket, you know, I think are, are helping. But I think, you know, the chefs, hopefully, in the film do show that, you know, and it is a kind of gradual re-education that cooking can be fun, you know, even if you're just experimenting with leftovers, you know, and mm-hmm. recognizing that food, you know, has value. So that message is sort of reiterated over and over and over again. And right. People don't think enough about where their food comes from, you know, what it takes to grow one single vegetable or a piece of meat or slice of bread in terms of, like, manpower and water and land right. and transportation. So I know I'm not answering your question specifically, but I I do feel like we are going through sort of waxes and wanes, you know, in in our our approach to food in the 1950s, you know, television, TV meals, entrees were popular, and then suddenly there was a big resurgence in the, you know, 70s towards, um, you know...
0: Scratch cooking, you
1: think? Yeah, exactly. Really? I, I, mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't know, I don't feel like we're that. going through through cycles, and right now um, we're in, like, a cross-section of, like, the, exactly what you described, and I, I do think there is a, a, an overall interest in, in food, probably more than ever, like, people are watching food television, you yes. food imagery and in Instagram, so there's an obsession with food, but I think... Um, I I don't know. I don't know what the exact solution is. Yeah, it's
0: hard to say whether that obsession with food translates into actually getting in the kitchen and cooking on a regular basis. I'm not talking about, oh, I feel like cooking this week. I'm going to go out and spend a bunch of money on, you know, X number of ingredients and wow my friends or whatever and make one really great meal. It's like, you know, it's the day-to-day prep um the day to day having a pantry, um you know that kind of stuff that I think eludes a lot of people, uh, partly because of busy schedules uh, two fam two parent working you know parents, you know everybody's out of the house. there's nobody there to really do that, which what housewives did back in the day. Um, yeah. you know, so I I, mean,
1: I, I I confess personally i I have gotten pretty deep into the the food kit <laughs> food have you kit, really? Uh, I have, and I have found it extremely useful. I mean, yeah. I, I work. I have two kids. Right. Um, I get it. You know, it. to be able to have the sort of that box of like just what you need, right? And, and and a and a recipe. And I've, in all honesty, I feel like we've reduced our personal food waste as a family, you know, considerably, you know, through through that approach. Interesting. Um, and I, you know, I take all the materials that the box comes in, and I try to put all those materials in, in the recyclables. So. Yeah, so cutting, cutting down on that, hopefully. I mean, I'm not a- a advocating that that's a solution for everybody, but it's definitely a solution that has has worked for us. I feel right. like I'm, our takeout consumption has been reduced by probably 75 percent. Wow. I'm like, you know, I'm cooking meals for the kids, and they seem to like it, and, and we have very little leftovers. So I don't know. It, right. It, that seems to be working for me.
0: Well, I, I, th- I think it's a really interesting phenomenon. I also think the meal kits are like a gateway to cooking without a meal kit. You know what I mean? Like it, Exactly. Because it shows people that it's really, cooking is not rocket science. It is really freaking easy. Yeah. And... <laughs>
1: It is. You're right.
0: For just, I mean, you don't. You don't have to be Paul Bocuse. You know, you don't have to be Mario Batali. You can make your own spaghetti sauce, for example. Um, Just, I mean, as a basic example, you know, instead of buying a sugar laden jar for three ninety five, you can buy a can of tomatoes for a buck fifty nine and make just as good, if not better, a sauce with a couple of you know with basically salt, pepper, and garlic, you know? Yeah, you're <laughs> I mean, absolutely right. You know, it's, 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 it's somehow, on some level, I feel like cooking television uh, robbed people of the idea that cooking is as easy as it is because what they show is usually so, you know, has such a wow factor to it. right. Um, I, we digress somewhat, uh, but we have a couple of minutes. Um, one thing that I wanted to bring up with you, cause uh, Massimo Botura in talking about the, the, uh, Raffiat, how do you say that word? Raffatorio?
1: Yeah. Raffetorio, yeah. Okay.
0: Um, have you, did, I, I, I was surprised that you guys didn't include the wee food model, which the Danish uh, have pioneered. Have you seen that? Are you familiar with that?
1: Yeah, I, I, we are familiar with it. And I, I believe we did do research into that. I mean, uh-huh. I, you know, Budget wise, schedule wise, right, we did try to cover work. places all over the world. We yeah. went to Japan, we went to Korea, Italy. You know, we went to met several different countries. So, I think schedule wise, we weren't able to cover everything. I mean, personally and secretly, I'm hoping that you know, we could <laughs> pitch this idea of food waste as a as a series and yeah. you know, continue and explore it. But um,
0: that's a great idea, you know, Lydia. I hope that anyone works listening out, for out
1: you. there, that's, yeah. that's our next. Pick. Think about it. Think, think about it. You know, yeah. There's so much to cover in 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 um in this in this idea. Serena,
0: this right. I actually the know the woman the, who developed the Wee Food model. I mean mm-hmm. through a friend who works at the UN I met this woman and um anyway she I mean we
1: did cover Daily Table, which is the supermarket I referenced earlier in North right. Massachusetts and they seem to be adopting a similar, you know, concept to to we Food.
0: Well, Wee Food. Just to tell listeners who may not know, it's it's basically the surplus from any supermarket in Denmark is then uh, transferred to another store where it is discounted thirty to fifty percent, and that's just an effort. It's like food that whose label is, you know, their expiration label is coming up tomorrow, or you know, produce that might be just a little bit shop worn or whatever. It goes into the Wee Food uh, market and it's heavily discounted and therefore much more accessible to a larger group of people. People, and including people who are, it's not necessarily geared towards a low-income population. It's for anybody who cares about food waste and wants to reduce it. Um, exactly. I so, mean, we did
1: cover that scene. Daily Table in the Dorchester Mass is exactly that model. Um, uh-huh. it, it's very similar. They, they do exactly the same thing. Um, and, and you see the demographic of people who are going in there. Um, you know, Daily Table was, set, was specifically set up in an area that was considered a food desert. You know, food deserts are places where people don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables, or getting you know the the bulk of their um, their groceries like in corner bodegas and things like that. So this right. was set up in a food desert, but the demographic that goes that went through there are not just low income people, but you know. Uh, the whole cross-section sure. of, of right. Sure, middle-class people, so,
0: you and me. Yep. I mean, yep. I would shop at a place like that if it existed so in my I. neighborhood. Yep. Absolutely, no question. Um, well, uh, because we do have to wrap up, actually, pretty soon. Um, what what kind of political will uh, do you see existing in this country for making um, changes at the federal level? Like, the Food thing was promoted by the Danish Minister of Food and the Environment. The French have banned supermarkets from throwing food away entirely. Um, do we have anything like that kind of momentum or movement Movement, uh, within our uh, government agencies uh, or within our congressional representatives uh, where food waste is kind of a big deal. Did, you guys didn't invite in, interview any uh, politicians, did you?
1: We didn't interview any politicians. And, you know, when we were in the midst of production of the film, we were definitely in a different political climate than we are <laughs> now. Indeed we are. Now, so I'm taking a big, you know... Breath, An anxious breath, yeah. um, because it's it's hard to say uh, politically and governmentally and congressionally, you know, where any of the action is. So we, I think, purpose, purposely, you know, chose to target in the film consumers and everyday people, because yeah. the change is really going to have to start at that level. I mean, people eat three times a day, yeah. three times a day that they can think about where they buy and cook and eat, you know, three times a day where they can be conscious of what they're consuming and what they're throwing out. So, you know, it, it is very, the film is very targeted on the consumer level, the people mm-hmm. level. You know, once that knowledge is really transferred, then hopefully there are no barriers you know, right. to change and people will start to to, to ask for that. I mean, I, again, just talking on my own personal level, I made a change after, the. you know, we were working on the film. Like, yep. I started throwing my stuff in a separate bin to take to the compost, walk that 15 minutes to the Union Square Market, and dump it in the common, you know, composting bin there.
0: Yeah, yeah. The
1: personal change that I made, and I think
0: that's something we can not. all do. And in New There's York, uh, in New York, we now—I mean, my building now has a uh, composting. You know, we have a recycle. We have a food waste bin in our our basement now, like we're you supposed do? To, yes, really? and that's, that's a, amazing, that's a program, no, but that's a program that Bloomberg started, uh, like three, or four years ago, before yep. de Blasio, and it's been going by, you know, sort of, uh, what do you call it, district by district, through the city, and through the boroughs, and now it has reached the Upper West Side, and I'm, I'm sure we're not alone in having that, um, that new mandate, it started in Yeah, September. I mean, I
1: think that is, the, our greatest hope is really sort of the power of the city-state, mm-hmm. and this juncture and individual, you know, locales, you know, pushing for for those kinds of changes.
0: Yes, absolutely. And what do you think, as my last question, how ready do you think the American population is on the whole to receive this kind of information and act on it? Do you feel like we've reached a place where... You know, people are sufficiently aware of the impacts of food waste that they're going to feel the way you did and the way I do about recycling, about composting. Um, Because I too got religion about composting after. I mean, we did it as a child when I grew up. That's how we always composted. But um, but I grew up in the country, you know, so. Yeah. You know, and, but for the last, I mean, for five or six years, I was like, oh, I can't stand it. I don't want to have those food scraps on my counter. You know, it's like, blah, blah, blah. And now I'm just like, I have to do it. You know, my compost yeah. bin is chock-a-block, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. I actually have to buy a new one. Um, and I'm going to get one of those tumbler ones, actually. This is for my house with, in Rhode Island. When
1: people see, you know, see the film and they, they hear that one statistic, which was really the big hammer on my head, yeah. which was... My food that I'm throwing away is not decomposing <laughs> organically. It is rotting in a landfill and creating 23% of the methane gas that's getting
0: released. Wow. You know,
1: greenhouse gas, that is an unbelievably eye-opening statistic. Yes. You know, and, and we interviewed, we did a couple of man on the street interviews where people were scratching their heads, really? Now, I thought my, that head of lettuce that I threw away just sort of in the in the in sure. the dirt. No, it doesn't. It, it, and the length of time at it, it, which it's decomposing in landfill, also an unbelievably eye-opening statistic. So I think our, our hope, and, I, and I, we feel very confident about it, is that the film is going to be a, a strong educational tool. There is a component of the film that, um, uh, and, and part of the grant we got from Rockefeller Foundation was to create a curriculum, and we're, we've partnered with James Beard Foundation to create a curriculum uh, for culinary schools. To reeducate you know new up and coming uh, cooks and chefs uh-huh. on the idea of, of food waste so that that's a big component uh, that we're working on as well um, so I don't know I, I I feel people are ready and they just they need the the they just need education. the information, right. They need the
0: information, yeah. And then there's that basic statistic is that your base, every household is throwing out somewhere between $1,500 and $2,000 worth of food a year. Like, yes, boom. Exactly. <laughs> boom. Right? It's you can go on economics. vacation, man. Like, you can use that money to go on vacation. Like... Yes, you can. <laughs> Buy some new clothes. Right. That's what you need. Right. Lydia, thank you so, so much for uh, joining me today.